Richard Blissbrook here. We are live. You sit here today with none other than Mark Victor Hansen. Bob Proctor. This is Kendra Hall. Tanya Stringer. Jeff Canfield. Whit Jones. James Clear. Les Brown. People want to hear stories. I like getting stories out of my guests here. So thanks for joining us. Brian Byro is America's number one breakthrough speaker. He's one of the nation's foremost speakers and teachers of leadership, possibility thinking, thriving on change, and team building. He's delivered more than 1,800 presentations around the world in the past 30 years. His clients include such diverse organizations as Lockheed Martin, the U.S. Army, the Naval Information Welfare Center, PricewaterhouseCoopers, the University of Notre Dame, UCLA, the Northern Carolina Association for the Advancement of Teaching, senators and representatives from 13 western states deloitte salex goodyear the virginia school superintendents kaiser permanente starbucks pizza hut ihop microsoft oracle cisco mcdonald's dairy queen allstate insurance good samaritan hospital remax shackley the american rental association and hundreds more a major client offered the best introduction about brian's impact when he said Brian Byro has the energy of a 10-year-old, the enthusiasm of a 20-year-old, and the wisdom of a 75-year-old. The former vice president of major transportation corporation in the Pacific Northwest, he helped lead a major turnaround that resulted in the company quadrupling in revenues, becoming solidly profitable, and being named the leader in the air freight industry for customer service and convenience by Distribution Magazine. Brian is the author of 15 books, including bestseller Beyond Success, which reached number 16 on the Amazon.com 100 from over 2 million titles. And his new, The ROI of Kindness, Brian was rated number one from over 40 speakers at four consecutive Inc. Magazine International Business Conferences. He graduated with honors from Stanford and served as the president of the UCLA Graduate School of Management Student Association while earning his MBA from UCLA. He's appeared on Good Morning America, CNN's Business Unusual, and has been a guest on more than 300 radio programs, as well as dozens of podcasts throughout the country. He's been a featured speaker at the Disney Institute in Orlando. Brian was named one of UCLA Graduate School of Management's 100 most inspirational graduates in the 75-year history of the school. Most recently, Brian was also honored as one of the top 10 interactive speakers in North America and one of the top 60 motivational speakers in the world. Let's welcome Brian Byro to the Richard Brook Podcast. Hey gang, check out who I got in the studio today. Well, he's not in my studio, he's in his studio. He's probably not even in his studio. He's somewhere in Rhode Island. <laughs> Delaware, but it's close. Delaware, he's, he's traveling today, but I caught him. Brian Byro, baby, look at who I got on the podcast today. And Brian, thank you so much for being here and making this happen so fast. Um, I'm headed to Europe for six weeks on Monday, and I wanted to get you done before I took off. And um, so well, thank you for rallying. It's an honor to be with you. Any chance I have to get with Richard Brooke is, a, is, a, is a nothing but pure joy. So thanks. Well, I appreciate that so much. Um, Brian Byro has delivered more than 1,800. I don't even want to try to figure out how many that is a year or whatever. Presentations around the world. 
in the past 30 years, his clients, I was reading this and I'm going, oh, wow. His clients include such diverse organizations as Lockheed Martin, 97 events with Lockheed Martin. I don't even think they'd let me uh, inside the front gates. The U.S. <laughs> Army, the Naval Information Warfare Center. I know they wouldn't let me anywhere near. Price Waterhouse, 41 events. The University of Notre Dame, UCLA. <laughs> the North Carolina Association for the Advancement of Teaching. Senators and representatives from 13 Western states. Deloitte, Salex, Salex Goodyear, the Virginia School Superintendents. Kaiser Permanente, 65 events, Starbucks, 35 events, Pizza Hut, 31 events, IHOP, I don't know, that kind of, I might, IHOP, really, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> Microsoft, 43 events, Oracle, that's my neighbor here, that's as close as I get to Oracle, Cisco, McDonald's, Dairy Queen, you're kind of high on fast foods. Allstate Insurance, Good Samaritan Hospital, Remax, Shackley, now we're talking, the American Rental Association, and hundreds more. Uh, wow. It's been a great life. I love it. And, you know, um, and then you got this piece about um, early in your career, you built one of the largest private swim teams in the United States, numbering over 275 competitive swimmers and your team finished in the top three on three occasions at the junior national championships top 10 senior nationals and 44 of his athletes have earned full college scholarships and you received the united states swimming national coaching excellence awards i mean i can't even can't even pull it all together uh and then all these speaking awards um i saw somewhere on I don't know, your website or social media or something that one of your uh, swimmers has now competed in the, um, I think it's called the um, Waikiki Rough Water Swim 37 times in a row. And I asked my wife, Kimmy, who grew up on Oahu at the Outrigger Club, I said, you know that race? And she said, yep, they swim from the Outrigger Club all the way down to Waikiki and back, and it's dangerous. I remember the first time that I, I spoke in Hawaii, They on that day, the the Honolulu Times, I think it was called, had a full, the front the front page with a picture of that swimmer. His name is Joe Lalikas. He's still out there in Hawaii, um, running to the finish, and he won it that first year. He was one of the greatest swimmers ever in the history of the University of Hawaii. And an even better person, one of the greatest people. You'd, he's a teacher who loves, I mean, he has so much passion and enthusiasm for helping kids. He's unbelievable. Well, we're going to get into, Brian, uh, all your success philosophies. And we're going to talk about lessons from the legends. Um, but where I felt like we could get the most juice in this conversation is, I have to imagine that you are a man of integrity that walks his talk, would that be a yes? I certainly do the best I can, yes. Yes, you do the best you can. So I was thinking that the best place to find your leadership and success principles is in your own life story. Because when I look at where you might've come from, which I don't know that intimately, but we're gonna find out. And then I look at your resume, the gap between the two, <laughs> that's a journey. 
And that has to be a journey full of the application of success principles that you teach. And so I, I want to hear your story. And I think my audience wants to hear your story. Where did Brian Byro grow up and how did he grow up? And when did you get the first inkling that you were a coach? Well, I'll tell you, Richard, I, I, I think the, the starting place is I love people. I believe that we have more in us. One of my books is called There Are No Overachievers. And I, I truly believe that we have more in us than then we we rarely get to that point. So from the time I can remember, I grew up in Southern California in the San Fernando Valley. My dad was a LAPD. He was a lieutenant in the Los Angeles Police Department. My wow. mother was a, um, she was a great artist her whole life, but what she did to help uh, put food on the table, she was a receptionist at a, uh, at a uh, pediatrician's office. So kind of simple background. Um, I grew up like a lot of people of my age. My dad was um, at first my hero, and then he was that guy who in some ways was sort of my, what I call an energy vampire. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, he, he grew up without a mother. And as a result of that, a lot of his life, he just, he just closed up. And, but I didn't know that as a kid. As a kid, all I knew was I wanted my dad to hug me. I wanted him to love me. I wanted him to be proud of me, but he couldn't do it. Um, he just closed that off. And so the, 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 the impact of that in life was it started to generate in me sort of a, a desire that I had to win that approval, that maybe if I got great at something, maybe then I'd be good enough for my dad's approval. And, um, and so it kind of set me off. I thought if I'm great in school and in sports, then, you know, then maybe he'll hug me. Maybe they don't say you love me. Um, but it didn't work. Um, but it did start to create some motion in in school, and I had some uh, a great teacher who was what I call a truly positive Pygmalion, and his name was Mr. Anderson. And one day he pulled me into his office in the tenth grade, set me in a chair. Now he was the cool teacher. We all had a cool teacher, the one that yeah. everybody thought was the best. Yeah. You know, he he treated us like we were grown-ups, not a bunch of you know pointed-headed little high school guys. Yeah. And he pulled me in his office one day, and he sat me down. He was really serious, and he was rarely serious. He was always lighthearted. He said, Brian, a student like you only comes along once every 10 or 15 years. Now, Richard, when he said it, it's real likely he meant it bad more than he meant it good. <laughs> at that time, all I cared about was being liked. It was that, that kind of growth from that not feeling like I was loved from my, my own dad. And, and so I was a class clown. I was a kid who would always sit around trying to wait for the right moment to pounce with an inappropriate remark to get a rise out of the class. But for some reason, he saw in me what I was terrified to see in myself. And the next words he said changed the whole trajectory of my life. He said, Brian, there's something special in you. Stop wasting it, son. Whoa. He said, every day is a gift, but you're the only one who can open that gift. And he said, son, you haven't opened one of them. He said, if your tank is full at the end of the day, you wasted that day. Make your day a masterpiece. And it was not just what he said, but how he said it, that reached into my soul and changed the whole direction of my life. And I, because of him, in that moment, I, I turned my, my, my school around. I, I managed to get into Stanford University. Although I will say to this day, I'm pretty certain there must be another Brian Byro who is still upset that he didn't get checked, you know, didn't get accepted, but had a great, great life there. 
um, to put myself through school, uh, it took me to my first career. And what I did was I coached and I taught swimming. Wow. And I loved it. Because I'd start off the summer with a group of little kids who had no clue. They never really set goals. They never really went after anything. Uh, and I, as you can probably tell, I have kind of a lot of energy. I'm sort of a ooh-ooh-ooh guy. And I pour myself into these heart, my heart and soul into these kids. And by the end of the summer, they would improve so much that when uh, time came to graduate, I knew that that's what I wanted to do was to coach those kids. So uh, I started a little team in Southern California. Um, and right before that, though, I had the epif epiphany moment of my life that is really important to share on this story and journey. And that was the result of that that desire to be good enough in my dad's eyes made me for the first part of my life, always seek to try to be the best at whatever I did, the best. And I was not a lot of fun to play with because I had to beat you. Um, but one day in college at the depths of the, the most down moment I'd ever had in my life, I had this epiphany. I said, you know, I've lived my whole life trying to be the best, which is something that is ridiculous. What I want to do for the rest of my life is, is move towards being my best. The difference between the word the best and my best transformed my life. Because I started to focus instead on of beating people, on controlling my controllables, on being the best that I could be, to stop comparing. And that really changed the direction. So as a coach, that's how I coach. You don't coach swimming. You coach people. Um, you coach people to believe in themselves, to start to see their possibilities, to deal with, uh, with success and failure with the same, the same focus. They each is a success as long as you look at failure as an opportunity to learn. Um, and so for eight years, my life was building a swim team. It started as a little tiny team of 15 little kids in Southern California. To eight years later, we were the largest private team in the U.S. at that time. And uh, it was a great time but you're gonna laugh at this part, I had no life. Uh, the only reason I left coaching was I had no life. I'm probably the only guy who went to graduate school to get a life instead of a job. Um, and I did, I went to UCLA, um, started really understanding that uh, the, the importance of fitness, you know, I was a swimming coach, but I was not in really great shape. But in, in graduate school, I started to run a lot and train, I met my wife. Um, tomorrow we're going to celebrate our 38th anniversary. Wow. Uh, uh, and so I went into, uh, into corporate America. That was my second career. Um, and in that time, of course, I had my most important career. My, my two daughters were born, my daughters, Kelsey and Jenna, who yeah. are the light of our lives. And now our grandchildren are the, the, the neon lights of our life. Um, and, uh, so I spent five years in the corporate world, had a kind of a rock star opportunity. I became a vice president of a very large transportation company, one that happened to be huge in Hawaii. Um, and it was a transportation company. I realized I didn't give a hoot about transportation, but I love people. And that's when I started doing team building programs in my own organization, because we were like so many organizations, whether in network marketing, whether in corporate America, we had operations who hated sales and sales hated operations. And they both hated the home office just a little bit more. And, and to me, that just made no sense because we each didn't want to do the other's job. And so I started doing team building in my own company. We had an incredible turnaround that, that went way beyond when I left. And at the peak of this thing, 
I go to my wife and I say, honey, we're doing great. Let's quit. I got to go do this. Um, and so that's when I started my career as a professional speaker and author. And, and uh, I kind of dived off the deep end, hoping it was that there was water there. But it's been when you do what you love, good things follow. So um, that's been the last 33 years. Um, I had the chance to speak all over the world to well over a million people, hundreds of market, network marketing events. I love network marketing events because I, I, I classify network marketers as they're what I call front of the room energy people. Yeah. Um, when you do a program for uh, a big corporation, the, the last row to fill up in that, in that, in that event is going to be the front row. That'd be they don't want to get called on. They don't want to do that. The first row to fill up in network marketing is the front row. They'll camp out there three weeks before. Yeah. Um, and so I love it because, you know, I, I, my, the foundation of what I teach is that everyone is a leader. Um, you are the CEO of your own life. And to, to have a hunger to learn, to be humble. Uh, and to me, humility is one of the most powerful, powerful keys to being a great leader. Because... And, you know, some people think being humble means you're weak or soft. No, no chance. You can have no. great confidence and be very humble because being humble doesn't mean you think less of yourself. It means you think of yourself less. My and only Brian. those who are humble are lifelong learners. Only those My who are man. humble would rather be wrong and learn from it than to pretend they're always right. Like I used to do before that epiphany moment. So that brings you to today where I, I always keep my perspective if you get an email from me, it always says Brian Byro, husband, father, grandfather, speaker, author. And that's that's the circle that I really love to live in. Yeah. Beautiful story. Congratulations to you and Carol. And what are you doing tomorrow to celebrate, by the way? We're we're babysitting our grandchildren, <laughs> which to me is the greatest thing of all. You know, you know, the a lot of people say, you know, being a grandparent is great because you get to spoil them and drop them off. That's not it. I mean, there is a little bit of that, but the real beauty of it is you're at a different place in your life than you were when you had your own kids. And so you're more present. And only when we're present do we say to people that they're important. And, and, and so you just realize the time that I have with this four-year-old and seven-year-old is precious. I don't want to miss a second of it. So uh, that could, it really couldn't be a better, a better one because it also coincides with my daughter's 10th anniversary that's why we're looking after these these two little uh, rambunctious energy sources. All right, perfect. I'm, I'm going to go back and dissect this story. I want to start with your dad because a lot of people can relate to those kind of parents and those kind of responses to those kind of parents. You you chose the what I call the "I'll show you" route to living, and some people take that experience and they sort of succumb to it, right? And they live a small life. You chose that experience to prove that that's not the case and you can deserve that love. And, and you went and performed as a result. But I'm curious about your dad. Do you know anything about your dad's growing up, his parents? Did you ever meet his father? I didn't. And I, I'm so glad you want to talk more about this because there's a the rest of the story. And I want to make sure you get it all. Yeah. Um, um, my dad's dad was very much like him. He was a he was a doctor, a very successful doctor. Someone who, in his work, he was the chief of uh, uh, chief of uh, phys physical medicine at uh, Santa Monica Hospital in Southern California. Wow. Brilliant guy. He went all the way through electrical engineering school, got his PhD in electrical engineering, 
then decided he wanted to be an MD, went back to school and got that. And so, um, but he was also very tough and very quiet. Um, he was born in Hungary. Um, he, uh, my, my mother, my, my father's mother was the light in his life, but she died when he was seven. And my uh, uncle told me that when she t passed, it was as if something kind of swept around my dad and closed him up. Um, but I want to make sure I really finish the story because today my 92-year-old dad is one of my best friends in the world. Oh, good. And for 14 years from when I went away to college until two events happened in my life, I had basically no relationship with my dad. I, I pretended to say to heck with him. I don't need him. I'm going to the good school. I got a good life. But he was still my dad and he was still my hero in many ways. Two things happened. First, my wife, Carol, and I found each other. We fell in love and we got married. And my dad wasn't a part of it. And it kind of ripped a hole in my heart, a wound that wouldn't heal. And then one year later, we gave birth to our first daughter, our daughter, Kelsey. And he never held her. He never wow. saw her. He never knew her. Wow. And that wound got deeper. And finally, I went to my wife, Carol, and we talked. And I said, you know, as tough as it was to be around my dad, I don't want our kids to never know their grandparents. So let's go see him. Um, and so we went to visit him after 14 years. And but I made another choice. And this is the choice I want to share with everyone watching this podcast, because I was convinced that my dad was my energy vampire, that he sucked the energy out of me, that I was never good enough. But the choice I made when we went to visit him was one that said it was about to realize that if things are to change, I must change. And the simple choice was that I decided for the first time ever when I was going to be around my dad, I was going to bring my own authentic energy. I was going to be myself. See, I always tried to be who I thought he wanted me to be, like him. But I wasn't like that. I'm a goofball. I cry at openings of supermarkets. I'm terrible. I cried at Mickey and Minnie on ice. That's how bad I am. So we go to see my parents and I bring my own energy. I released my energy vampire, not out of anger, but out of joy. And in one day of realizing that that energy vampire was my creation, my life totally changed. First thing that happened was I realized how much I love my dad and how much he taught me. It was my dad who taught me about work ethic. It was my dad who taught me about energy. It was my dad who taught me about integrity. It was my dad who taught me about unselfishness. And I, but I could never see it because I was so busy being bitter that I couldn't get better. As that, as that hit me, I finally realized, Richard, the most biggest epiphany of all. I realized my dad had always told me he loved me. Yeah. He just couldn't say it. Right. And he just couldn't physically hug me. But for 17 years growing up, the man worked two jobs, so we'd be, have enough. He got this old dilapidated bicycle, and every spare minute of which he had none, over months and months, he worked on that bike. So Christmas morning, there was my red racing bike. But I couldn't see it because I was too busy being bitter. For the first time ever, we started to talk. And I found out all those years that my dad, I didn't think he even knew or cared what I was doing in school and sports. He was telling all the other cops. He just didn't want me to have a fat head. Right. You know, today, my 92-year-old daddy is one of my best friends. And we brought his great-grandchildren to see him in October. And I watched him get down on his knees, which is a long way down at 92 put his arms around Augie and Quinny, kissed them each on the cheek and said, I love you too. And I knew he was saying it to me. Yeah. And over the last 
six months since that time, pretty much every conversation, I call him pretty much every day now, ends with, I love you, son. So if you have somebody who you who is your energy vampire, stop it. It's not, no one can take your energy away from you unless you give them permission. And if you let that, if you let that go, release it. I'm not saying that you'll have the incredible breakthrough that I had because you don't control the other person, but you'll know that not forgiving someone is drinking poison and expecting them to die. I'm so glad you're telling this story, Brian, because my students, uh, which might be a small percentage of the people that are following this are probably having all kinds of tingly feelings because they're going to hear your version of this as changing your story and then changing your life as a result. And so you changed your story about your dad, which is reinvention. That's, that's getting reborn in a way. And I wonder if you can connect that change. I'm really curious about, you said, I think it was right after Stanford or maybe right before Stanford that you had an epiphany about letting go of having to win and beat and compete and just focus on being the best you can be. I don't know that those kind of epiphanies come out of nowhere. What were you studying? What, what were you immersed in? Who were you listening to? What, what can you tie that epiphany to? Cause that's huge. You know, that, that was one of the, as I said, it was, it was a really one word change can change your story the, from the to my, from the best to my best. And when it hit me was the darkest moment of my life. I was a senior at Stanford. Uh, all my friends had girlfriends. I had none. Um, I, all my friends kind of knew exactly what they wanted to do in life. I was still trying to figure it out. Um, I was loving Stanford. I loved going to Stanford. And and I was, you'll get a kick out of this. I, I was probably, before there was uh, sports psychology, I was, that was what I was studying. My uh. major was psychology, but I was studying guys like Dan Millman. Um, I was studying guys like, uh, uh, what was his last name? Was Leonard, who talked about the ultimate athlete. And they really, that was really some of the the groundwork of what what really fed into that epiphany was to start to look on the inside instead of always deciding who you are from what everybody thinks on the outside. To start yeah. to look at life as your character, not your reputation. Your right. character is who you are, reputation, what others think you are. And so on this day, I was beating myself up. I, I actually wondered if I was worth living. And I've never had a moment like that. And for about, oh, I don't know, 40, I drove off to a to, uh, to kind of a, a valley behind Stanford. And I actually thought about taking my own life. Wow. But instead I started to write. I had a, a journal, a kind of just a notebook and I started to write. And first it was mean stuff about what a rotten guy I was. And then it hit me that it was all because of comparison that I was living my life comparing myself. It was just, just like that. And, and that's when I wrote the words, I've lived my entire life seeking to be the best, which I can't even define. And it's never good enough. Never. Because I have no control of it. And what if I switch to wanting to simply live my life to be my best? And so that started a movement towards really my, my chief mentor. I, I, I can get from a lot of your questions that you love 
finding out who are the, the influences, the heroes, the people in our life. Um, and my biggest mentor was the great UCLA basketball coach, John Wooden. Um, yep. Uh, coach Wooden, for those who may not know, was the UCLA basketball coach who won 10 national championships. Perspective. No other coach in men's college history has won more than five. He won 10 in 12 years, the last 12 years that he coached. But he would have been the first to tell you he didn't win any in the first 27 years that he coached. <laughs> he used to say, it's what you learn after you know everything that makes the difference. Right. But yeah. Coach Wooden, in 27 years at UCLA, the greatest of them all, never said the words winning or losing to his players. He never said the words. Did he want to win? Oh, yeah. But what he wanted was for everyone that he had a chance to influence to look at success as peace of mind that comes only from knowing that you've given the best of what you're capable. Yeah. In other words, if you have to look on the outside, you don't know. Right. You got to look on the inside by what you put in to control your controllables. And that's been the, the, the pivotal message of all that I, I teach and train is if you start to focus on what you put in, that's the only way that consistently great things will come out. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know that people think about because so many people are on the type A red personality, competitive, and and they're brought up being edified, right? That hey, competition is everything, winning is everything. You know, it's sports, and that's what drives that whole economy. And and yet, you know, what they don't often think about is hey, if the only way you're going to get validation and be complete is by winning. Don't forget you're competing with everybody else that's addicted to that same neuroses. <laughs> and there's only one winner. That's everybody exactly else right. is a loser. <laughs> My grandchildren just came in. So I... Oh, well, bring them in. Bring them in. Well, if they come in, they'll take over the show. We have for oh, sure. That's all right. We let we let dogs and cats and you know, grandkids and you know, I got to tell you, Richard, there's that you brought up something that just really clicks in me. I, I talk about something. I've talked about it for 30 years that I call the relay paradigm. And as a coach, um, it always fascinated me that no matter what level an athlete was as swimmer, whether they were Joe Lalikas at the at the national, international level or a starter, they always did better in relays. And a relay is four, there's four of people. So if you have three teammates and it hit me that that was for the, the reasons that define the opportunity to be our best. Number one, you got somebody bigger than yours. You have more than yourself to work, to give your best for, and we'll do more for others than we'll do for ourselves. That's the best part about being human beings. Number two, all right, is that when you are absolutely committed to not letting your teammates down, you get rid of fear. Uh, yeah. it, it comes from a different place. So they're swimming fear-free. But finally, the big one is when those two are in place, you have a purpose bigger than yourself. You've, you've broken through fear. You no longer look at competitors at competitors. You look at them as really your greatest teammates because they bring out the best in you. Um, and, you know, it, time after time, I saw that. And we can build that into our life every day. Yeah. So can you share with us and tell me a little bit about Pat Summit? Because I don't know her that well. Why did you choose her to partner here with Wooden in the book? And what are two or three of your favorite lessons from the two of them? Excellent. Well, 
For those who don't know, Pat Summit was the University of Tennessee Lady Vols college basketball coach. She died of early onset Alzheimer's. And her battle with that was pretty incredible too. Um, she was to women's basketball in many ways what John Wooden was to men's basketball. She won eight national championships. She made it to the national championship, um, uh, the final four, 16 times. Wow. Um, she started when women's basketball was not a big deal. You know, she when she started out, she had to be not only the coach, but the trainer. She had to tape people's ankles. She had to be the custodian, clean up the floor. That None of that was there when she started out. Um, and the reason I chose her to as, for, as the other legend, number one, because she's a woman, all right? And number two, because they were so similar and yet so different. Um, their style and their personalities were very different. John Wooden was like the, the epitome of the gentleman. He was, he was, I think the toughest words he ever said were good grief, um, <laughs> you know, but he got his point across, you know, right. he got his point across, but in a very gentleman way. He, he taught things like disagree without being disagreeable. Um, he was an, a remarkable, one of the greatest moments of my life was when I first met him and sat down in his living room with him and, and interviewed him and learned, and because he, he treated me like I was the legend. Uh -huh. Pat Summit was the tough, tough coach. She'd say things like, toughen up, buttercup. She had a stare that if she was on a Zoom call, she would melt the screen. I mean, she could just bring you down to the ground level with that stare. But they were so similar. And number one, that thing we just talked about, humility. Two of the most humble people you'd ever meet. Both very confident, but never, ever, ever stopped learning. Um, they looked at that within every, with every adversity is planted the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. So challenges in life are opportunities to learn. They both were incredibly hard workers. And um, they both grew up on farms, um, in, one in Tennessee, one in Indiana. So they learned at an early age to get up at five in the morning and you had to do your chores before you went to school. Uh, they both always gave credit and took responsibility. I love that. Uh, there's a great quote from another great coach, Paul Bear Bryant of the University of Alabama. He said, you know, I'm just an old country plow hand. He said, but if I've learned one thing, he says, if you want to get a team's heart to beat as one, when things go great, they did it. Things go pretty good, we did it. When things go bad, I did it. Yeah. In other words, I'm going to take responsibility and give credit. And that's very much the epitome of those two. Um, and finally, though they both loved to win and they won incredibly, they did so by focusing more on what you put in than what you take out and then what you try to get in, the, in return. That to them, the journey was a success. They were both teachers first and foremost. John Wooden, the greatest men's college basketball coach, never said he was a teach. Never said he was a coach. He called himself a teacher. Um, is he, is, I thought is that he was a powerful way to look at it, that he loved to help people grow. Um, and, and to do that, we have to start at the foundation, which is teaching. Is he the one who said there's no limit to what we can achieve if it doesn't matter who gets credit? It actually was from, from uh, um, Harry Truman, but he said it all the time, and I gave him right. credit for that quote. Right. <laughs> he said it's amazing it. what's accomplished when no one cares and gets the credit. Yeah. What I like to add to it is credit is something you give, responsibility is something you take. 
So this is an unfair question, but I be, I'm uh, too tempted not to ask it because um, I'm a little edgy at times. What do you think? I, you have to think about this being a leadership affectionado and passionate and dedicating your life to it and looking for leadership everywhere and coaching leadership everywhere. What do you think is missing in our culture and our society that the greatest leaders tend to get capped in business and sports and maybe education and maybe the arts, but they don't transcend into politics? <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm with you there. I'm with you there. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, I wrote this book. You, you got the edge. I wrote this book because I want us to focus more on character. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the big thing that's missing. I think that, you know, seven years ago or so, we started being so dang confrontational that, that, that those simple words, we can disagree without being disagreeable. And we've lost that. And we got to get it back. Because... Yeah. To tell you the truth, I know you're like this too, Richard. I love building teams, but I don't want a team of people who are just like me. Because well, all we're the little bit that I see. I yeah. want the people on my team who see the stuff that I miss. I want the people on my team with talents that aren't my talents. Yeah. And we're losing that by this confrontational, by by you know, calling people names all the time instead of you know respecting that we can, you know. We're, we're going towards the same thing. We want to have happy lives. We want to be successful in our lives. We want to make our world better for our children. And we can do that with dignity and respect. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is to prove through the example of these two that you can live that way and be successful. That character is, is a vital component in true lasting success. So yeah, I won't go there too much into the world in that realm, but I believe so much of it is based upon the fact that we stop respecting each other and it's more, we don't even want to listen to each other just because of it's the him as opposed to, well, tell me what you got to say. Let's see if we can find a way to make it work. Well, it's like curiosity is missing, um, which is such a, a gold mine of, of growth. And a distinction that I got from one of my mentors decades ago was, you know, if I agree with you, then what you have to offer me is consistent with what I already know. And there's probably no breakthrough there, right? But if I disagree with you, there is a possibility of a breakthrough. Doesn't mean I will find it, want it, get aligned with it, but how do you possibly have a breakthrough surrounding yourself with people who, who agree with everything you say, right? Absolutely. And I think that's a lot of the problem too, is that we have too much of that. We have, and you know, it, it takes respect to listen to someone. I had a great friend who he and I were basically polar opposites in politics. Yeah. But we had great respect for each other. And as a, re as a result, we learned from each other. And, and we could see each other's points with, we would not have done, as you say, if, if we just, you know, here's a, here's a simple way of saying it. We think differences are bad, but differences are the only place where we grow. It's as simple as that. Yeah. If, if people would just remember that they're not who they are today, they're not the same as they were 20 years ago. They, they have argued vehemently for positions they realized later were hmm, maybe naive or ill-informed. 
we always change, right? But in the moment, we, when we're arguing, right, we, there's not much possibility there. All right, I I'm, spoke at an event once with a, a, a generational speaker, and I was standing in the back because I was the closing speaker. And the generational speaker started talking about, does this fit the, you know, the young people today? And he started talking about how lazy they were and how they didn't stick with anything. And da, 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 da. And, and every, I'm watching, and it's a room full of baby boomers. And yeah. I'm watching from behind, and I've seen everybody nodding their heads. And then he said, this was written in 1968 about you. Right. So, yeah, we don't see the change. Sometimes we need a snapshot shock to go, whoa, yeah. I have a, I have a letter, Brian, that my great-grandfather wrote his father. And the letter, based, it's handwritten letter. And I found it in a um, antique roll-top desk that I completely had taken apart and refinished. And the roll-top desk, when the letter was sent and received, the roll-top was in London or somewhere in England. And my great-grandfather sent it from somewhere around Nevada or maybe California. They were ranchers. And the letter said, so my great-great-grandfather sent my grandfather to California and Nevada to scope out opportunities for buying land and ranching and farming. And in 1843, my great-grandfather wrote my great-great-grandfather a letter and said, don't bother coming here. All of the opportunity is gone. <laughs> and then he went on to name all the ethnic characters, which I think were like Irish and Italian and Polish and Chinese. I don't know. Uh, but he used all the slang slurs. And blamed it all on them. They'd ruined everything by 1843. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's a right, I want to transition as we wrap this up, because I know there's more gold here. My audience, for the most part, they have goals. They have business plans. They have projects. They have dreams. They're building something. And what they know is... What stands between where they are today and what they ultimately want to build are is, is a lot of work and a lot of patience and a lot of practice and a lot of consistency and a lot of courage and a lot of activity doing the things mundane every day that, um, well, their challenge is to turn that into a passion. And as I read your resume, Brian, and I look at the client's that you have landed and then repeat landed. I'm wondering if you can speak to who were you, are you, but were you, and what did you do relentlessly to stack up those wins? Because even getting in the door of one corporate client to speak Unless you're, unless you have a really, really good demo reel and you're free, it's hard, right? It's really hard. How did you do it? Well, I think it comes down to the things that I teach, Richard. I, I, I try to walk the talk of what I teach. And 
when we talk about controlling our controllables, there are three that I focus on every day. They are my, they are my relentless focus. The right. first I call shape the future. And that's really about two elements of vision. Um, every breakthrough starts with vision. I'm called America's breakthrough speaker because I love the concept of breaking through. The first is what you focus on is what you create, not what you get, because unless you get in the game, you get zero. You missed a hundred percent of the shots you never took. And so right. the vital, the vital process of mastering is to when you start to consistently focus on what you don't want to shift and get clear about what you do want. The second is I ask, I've asked hundreds of thousands of people a funny question. Um, it's question is I ask them in all my events. I'll ask your folks. I say, what color is a yield sign? And 99.9% of people answer yellow. Well, they're red and white. They've been red and white for 52 years. All right. They've been red and white since we, we switched the international sign and standards 52 years ago. I've never had an audience that didn't overwhelmingly yell yellow. I so missed it. Is, why don't we see that? Because we don't use our vision to see. We use our memory and our conditioning. And when you use your memory to see, you do not see what is, you see what was. So those two, and that means when you change the way you look at people, the people you look at change. Change the way you see yourself, the self you see will change. So every day I focus on remembering that what I focus on is what I create and make sure I'm not using my memory to see what's right in front of me. The second of the, uh, and this is like a whirlwind of a whole event. The second is to energize and engage your team. And before you can energize and engage your team, you must energize and engage yourself. That to everyone we touch, our energy is our example. And if I had to pick one thing that I think is responsible for me having done, because I'm not a real great mar self-marketer. My marketing is, is put into the programs. That the, the reason I have those re results is that, that they've asked for me. I love talking about what I do, but I don't necessarily like initiating that conversation. Right. Um, and, but the thing that really sticks out is energy, is that I love what I do. I, I joke about it, but it's the honest truth. When I am on stage, I am 25 years old. Yeah. I get off stage, I'm back to 69. But on stage, I am 25 because I'm doing what I love to do and I'm doing it with full out energy. And what I want people to know is your energy is your choice. Too many people think of their energy like the weather, like hope the weather's good for the family picnic. But your energy is a choice that you can cultivate by three things. One, changing the way you move. Your energy is created by the way that you move. You want to move your life, you got to move yourself. Yeah. Second, your energy is in direct proportion to your level of purpose. So ask every morning, what am I deeply grateful about today? Um, what you're grateful about will focus you on what your priorities are. Your priorities will lead you to purpose. You ever notice when you're full of, when you're full of purpose, you're full of energy. So if you're not inspired, you're on the way to getting expired. So the second thing is to really take charge of your energy. And the third element is what we talked about before. Release the energy vampire because you created them. No one can take your power away from you unless you give them permission. So the second of those three controllables that I work on every day is energy. The third is to build people, build teams, and build relationships. That every business is a people business. It's the relationships you build. It's how you grow and help others grow that determine how far you go. And the bottom line to building trust, to building people, is to work focused with passion on being fully present.
even in your emails, even in your social media, fully present. When you're fully present, you say to people the one thing you must communicate if they're going to grow, and that is that they're important. Because when people feel important, they go to, oh, yeah. When people feel unimportant, they quit, they fall away, they create problems, they give up. And so our job is to be fully present. When we do that, we do the most we possibly can to help people know who they are. Yeah, I think um, the way I feel about that is what other people are looking for innately is to be seen, heard, and to matter. And by us being present, we can have them show up that way. That's right. Because whenever we're fully present, we say to them beyond words, you're important, you matter, you count. You know, I'll never forget the first moment, the first time I sat with John Wooden. That was what hit me more than anything. This man was, bombs could be going off five feet away. And all he cared about in the moment was me. You know, and who was I? I'm sitting next to a living legend. It was, it was, a mo he was the most fully present person I've ever had the, the, uh, the honor of being around. It just occurred to me, uh, Brian, which I hadn't thought about in a long time. I had the opportunity long story how it happened business thing and a product i created but i had phil jackson in my office for two hours about awesome. 15 years ago just he and myself and uh, another business person and he made me feel that same way there you go and i'm i'm sure he always went to school on John Wooden because I'm sure he did. They all, they all did. And, and I think, you know, here's a great example of when you bring up Phil Jackson, one of his favorite things to do as a coach, I'm sure he talked about it was he would pick out books for his players. Yeah, That means you have to pay attention yeah. to what you feel, you know, will make the biggest impact on that person. When you're fully present, you pay attention and you can't coach everyone the same because everyone's not the same. Some people need a pat on the back. Some people need space. Some need a pointed pat called your toe in their tush. All right. And so you got to, if you don't pay attention by being present, you just don't know. One of my mentors told me once, actually at the urinal, he and I were standing at the urinal after a long, after a long uh, meeting where I apparently needed some coaching and he said he said to me he was from Oklahoma and he said to me he said you know what you need Brooke and I knew I was in for it right I said no what do I need he said you need to be like a crescent wrench now if you don't all know what that is that's a wrench that expands and contracts I and so I bit I said all right Johnny why do I need to be a crescent wrench Said, so you can fit every nut you run into. <laughs> we, are in the we are in the people business, and these coaches like John Wooden and Phil Jackson, they understand, you know, hey, if you got a talented team, they know how to play basketball. They don't always know how to tame their inner demons. They don't always know how to empower themselves. They don't always know how to write the story that has them be the best they can possibly be in concert with a bunch of other guys exactly to be the best they can be. These guys were maestros and you and I are fortunate to have tapped into some of that wisdom and extremely, extremely. 
everybody watching this has the opportunity now, Brian, um, because I have not in my career promoted you, although I've followed you for decades. Um, how how can people best tap into you, and what can my audience do for you? They're not IHOP or Microsoft, although some of them are. Um, but for the most part, these are entrepreneurs. These are solopreneurs. What can they do for you and how can they tap into you? Well, the easiest way to contact me, and I, I reply to everyone who ever contacts me. Um, it's just my website. It's just my name, brianbyro.com. Um, I really try to be present even in technology. You know, that's another, that's a kind of a branch that wasn't there when I started out. Um, I, I, as I said, I love speaking at network marketing events. They're the greatest. So, you know, you can recommend me to your organization. Uh, if you're a huge distributor, many of the events I've done have been with, with, with not the company itself, but a distributor. Um, of course, my books, I've written a lot of books. Um, and I, I, um, I love telling stories. I love that your stories are a big part of changing your story. Stories are 22 times more powerful than just information. So um, a, most of my writing is built around stories. So uh, I have several books. My first book was called Beyond Success. John Wooden wrote the foreword to it. My, most, my newest book that doesn't come out to November is the one you've been holding up, Lessons from the Legends. Um, it's got a ton of stories in it. Um, because I, that's the way you bring alive a concept. So through my books, um, through um, bringing me into your organization, that's what I would love to do most of all, because I believe I, the reason I have so much energy on stage is I'm doing what I was put on earth to do when I'm doing it. Yeah. Brian, you're a gift, a tremendous gift. Thank you for your time while you're moving around the countryside. Uh, congratulations again to you and Carol. On Thank you. 31 years of... 38. Marital, 38 years of marital bliss tomorrow. And thank her and the family for carving you out for 45 minutes, because I know that's not always easy. <laughs> and I will see you, brother, down the road somewhere. Let's I make can't wait. I, I know we could have gone on for hours. It was just a really, really an honor to meet you. I followed you for the same amount of time you followed me. So joy to you. Enjoy every precious moment. Thank you, sir. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us at the Richard Blissbrook podcast. Share it with your friends and neighbors. We'll see you next time. Over and out.